James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, let me welcome you very warmly. Add my welcome to those we've heard already. Um, it is really good to see faces. I know there are faces behind masks. I know there's a limit of how much we can um, talk to each other and encourage each other, but I'm really glad to see your eyes, at least, um, as we together gather under God's word. And if, you're, if you are at home listening in, thank you for joining us. I'm going to start by saying something really obvious and then something that's not at all obvious. Let me start by the obvious thing. Life in this world is often tough. Life often is really tough. I remember when I was about 20 being told by a a Bible teacher that if I hadn't yet witnessed or experienced significant suffering at close hand, I just hadn't lived long enough. And I hoped, well, that's, that's hopefully not true. Maybe I'm the exception. And then I lived long enough, and it was true. I wasn't the exception. And I think life's toughness is, is particularly obvious at the moment as we battle with COVID and all its complexities. There's just so many challenges, aren't there, facing us as a society, as a church family, as individuals. There's social challenges, mental challenges, financial challenges, organizational challenges. Wherever you look as well, at home, in jobs, at school, in unemployment, in employment, in families, in singleness, lots of challenges. Most of them made more complex with COVID-19. I've been in a few meetings this week where just the sheer complexity of getting things going safely is a real head scratcher. And I'm not even a school teacher. I imagine it's harder for them. Life is tough. Now, don't get me wrong. There have been times in history, and there are still right now countries around the world where life is a lot harder than we have it. We're not at war. 
We're not facing social anarchy. We're, we're not starving. We're not persecuted such that we're fearing for our lives when we, when we gather to meet. But nevertheless, there are lots of kinds of suffering in this fallen world, and most of them have become more challenging with coronavirus. Looking after aging parents or friends with dementia, that was already tough, but becomes much tougher when opportunities for visiting are so limited. Mourning childlessness, that was already tough. Much harder at a time when everyone else seems to be spending loads of time with their kids. Grieving lost loved ones. It's extra hard, isn't it, when you can't properly say goodbye. Struggling for mental health. It's harder when the normal rhythms and natural interaction with people is taken away. Anxiety about being in public places, that's intensified if you're worried about the virus. Seeking support for children with special needs. Harder when council budgets are stretched. Financial pressures worsened by looming recession, challenging job market. I mean, life in this world, it's always tough. But right now, it can feel tougher. That is the obvious bit. What is not at all obvious is how Christians are supposed to react. Not at all obvious. Just look at what James, he's the stepbrother of the Lord Jesus. Just look at what he says in verse 2 of our reading. I wonder if you, you, you were shocked by it as we read. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, the word means both, when you meet trials of various kinds. Say what? Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. I mean, whether you're a Christian listening in this morning or just kind of looking in on things out of curiosity, that approach to suffering, it is not at all obvious. It's odd, it's counterintuitive, it's even shocking. And we might come to that at the start of a new book in the Bible and think, well, this guy's clearly kind of, I don't know, a kind of Ned Flanders kind of Christianity, you know, kind of turn that frown upside down. Fridge magnet Christianity, kind of, come on, buck up, cheer up. We've got to remember the person writing is the brother of Jesus, who was crucified. He's also the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which faced massive persecution. If you remember Acts when we were there, massive persecution in its early years. One of his congregation members, Stephen, was the first martyr. Others of his congregation had to flee the city because Saul was persecuting the church so badly. And then soon after that, there was a famine. James knows what it's like to suffer and witness suffering close at hand. He actually ends up being martyred. He knows what pain is. He doesn't write this lightly. He's not saying, well, coronavirus, that's not really a big thing, is it? He's someone worth listening to when it comes to trials. In terms of who he's writing to, you can see there in verse 1, he's, he's writing to what he calls the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That's probably Jewish Christians who've been kind of scattered out from Jerusalem, who are now having a hard time. And the whole letter's beginning with this question, which you'll see at the top of the outline, if you've got that uh, overleaf on the service sheet, top of the outline, when the going gets tough, where do you turn? That's the question James had for, for them and for us. When the going gets tough, as it has for many of us, where do you turn? In the battles and isolation and stress of lockdown, where have we been turning? There are lots of 
possible answers around us, aren't there? There's the kind of turn to escapism, just kind of bury my head in entertainment, the box sets, the games, the streaming, just shut the world out. There's the turn to kind of frantic activity, the prep, the supplies, make a million plans, work like a machine. There's the turn to kind of, I don't know, homism, it's not really a word, but you know, go all in in trying to make home perfect. Build a little castle, little kingdom. There's materialism, go online shopping like never before. Or there's kind of turn to self-reliance or self-improvement. Now, actually, lots of those things are good gifts in God's world. But James wants us to know they're not the real solution. Fundamentally, through this letter, James wants us to turn wholeheartedly to God in our difficulties, even in trials. In fact, especially in trials, he wants us turning to God and God's wisdom. The problem for the people James was writing to was they were trying to do both. They were trying to have one foot in God's camp and one foot in the world and its solutions, its wisdom. They were doing kind of split personality Christianity. Happy to follow Jesus, especially on a Sunday, calling themselves Christians, but one foot very firmly planted in the world, its values, its mindset, its wisdom. If you look at the phrase in verse 8 that um, James uses, they were at risk of being double-minded. The image that keeps coming to my mind as I read through James is, is someone who's kind of stepped onto a boat from the riverbank. And the current is pulling that boat off. The, the boat is kind of setting sail. The, but their other foot is still on the bank, and the gap is ever-widening. I actually saw this at university once with someone who was a bit worried, and he could just see their legs kind of spreading, and he thought, this is not going to end well. Disaster is clearly looming. It's only a matter of time. They've got to pick a side. As we go through the book, like a kind of spiritual doctor, James is going to show a whole range of symptoms in our behavior or in our words that suggest we're doing that, suggest we might actually have the disease of double-mindedness. Certainly his readers did. There's a kind of heart examination to come over the next few weeks. But right up front, as he opens up, the first thing he he wants us to look at is how we respond to trials. He says, trials provide an opportunity to assess where are your feet planted? In fact, where do you want your feet planted? Trials are an opportunity to just stop hedging the bets, a time to turn from being double-minded. Later, in much more blunt imagery, he, he says it's a time to stop committing adultery between the Lord and the world, a time to get both feet into the gospel boat with Jesus. So, that's enough introduction. Let's dive in um, to to work through verses 1 to 18 in detail. Uh, You'll see on the handout, I've got four points. Don't panic, it's actually quite simple. Uh, The first one is a do, the last one is a don't, and there's a bit of help in the middle. So the do, verse 2, we get a do right up front. When facing difficulties, what should you do? Well, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of um, trials. Then uh, verse 13, right at the end, will give us the, the, the don't, what not to do. This, is, this will be point four when we get there. But let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Or verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. That's what not to do. Does that make sense? When life's tough, 
Don't be deceived. Don't blame God. Do turn to him and count those trials uh, joy. That's the basic commands. Do count trials joy. Don't be fooled into blaming God. And just that kind of stark, do this, don't do this, might leave us thinking, well, hang on, that, that is actually easier said than done, James. Which is why verses 5 to 11 in the middle are there. 5 to 11 is how we can do that if we're struggling, asking God for help, for wisdom. Okay, let's dive in. Point one, when life is tough, do count various trials joy. When life is tough, do count various trials joy. What kind of trials are we talking about here? Well, all kinds, various kinds, trials of all sorts. That's why I gave such a list at the start of this talk. The whole gamut of suffering as a human, sickness, grief, tragedy, and suffering as a Christian, persecution, alienation, sacrificial service. All of that in a fallen world is in view here. That makes this passage relevant to every single person listening. If you feel like you're not having a hard time at the moment, remember that Bible teacher. It's just a matter of time. And I guess we have seen a kind of variety of trials over recent months. For some, not being able to physically be here was a real trial, a difficulty. For others, just coming physically is a real trial, a battle. Some of us were furloughed, didn't know what to do with our time. Others of us were busier than ever, struggling to keep up. A few of us are in industries that are booming, busier than ever. Others have jobs at risk or jobs that have gone. Some have happy home lives and quite enjoyed a bit more time together in the same place. For others, lockdown exposing real pressures and tensions in their home life. Some quite enjoyed being solo and are now having to battle selfishness to get back to loving other people. Others were, were desperate to see people and now have the battle of uh, being restricted by regulations to keep us all safe and having to apply that patiently. Various kinds of trials. James says, whatever it is, whatever it is, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. He isn't saying that lightly. I'm not saying that lightly. I think I've mentioned to some of you before that there was there are a number of years where Jesse and I, we were grieving what we thought was permanent childlessness. And I remember being at a Christian conference. The crowds were singing back when you could. And uh, the, the, the words were something about uh, suffering is great because it, it helps us to grow and, and we're full of joy and we rejoice in it. And I just, they, they stuck in my throat. I just couldn't sing them. Easy to say. It seems impossible sometimes to do it, humanly speaking. But here it is, right up front, count trials joy. How? How on earth do you do that? What do you need to know? Well, verse 3 gives us the reason. This is what you need to know. This is the reason for this command. Count various trials joy because of what they produce. Incidentally, that's why James is using the word count. It's not that the trials which kind of consider or reckon, think of them as. So he's not saying that trials are fun, the trials are joyful, not at all. He's well aware the experience is unpleasant. But if you know what it produces, you can count them joy. You can reckon them, consider them joy, because the fruit they produce is so precious. What is the precious fruit? Well, verse 3, 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I wonder if we do know that. Do you know that? That when Christians go through the ringer, they grow steadfastness. That is kind of stickability, strength, stability, endurance. You'll know it if you've ever met a godly older saint who's suffered well. It becomes obvious pretty quickly. And there are a number like that in our church family. Even if we do know that the Bible often says that suffering can be God's means of growing us and growing our character in us, I wonder if we value steadfastness as precious, precious enough to be worth going through the mill for it. I mean, there are things we're worth going through the pain barrier for, aren't there? Um, for my daughter, um, those of you who are younger, uh, she'll go through almost anything so that she can watch a TV episode of Topsy and Tim. Others, we're, we're willing to go through exercising or, or dieting to get the fitness or the body we want. Um, I even spent some time with Joe Wicks and his high-impact interval training over lockdown. They're not enough, I don't think. Uh, others will endure studying or working hard to get the grades or the job we want. Others will save and scrimp to get the flat we want. Others will endure the pain of surgery to get the, the working legs we want or a dental visit to get the long-term dental health. But is it worth hurting to get your hands on steadfastness? Is that really something worth suffering for? If we don't believe that, we'll struggle to do the sums and come out being able to count them joy. If it's a choice of easy life, no difficulties but no steadfastness, or gaining steadfastness but it comes with suffering, I know I'm tempted for the former. But that's why we need to see what steadfastness leads to. Look at verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or even better, verse 12, just look on. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, there's the word, under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This stickability... Keeping going with Christ even under pressure. That's not a valued quality in our world, but in God's economy, it's the most precious thing. For two reasons. In verse 12, it's the path to eternal life. It, it's what will actually keep us going through thick and thin. And in verse 4, it's the means of transformation to maturity. I mean, just look how strong that language is. Verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, those words, they're about, they're about literally wholeness or integrity, the opposite of being divided. So not a double-minded person, not one foot in the boat, one foot on the bank, but, but a, a, a complete person, a whole person, a person with integrity, not, not semi-godly, semi-worldly, semi-Christ-like and a little bit hypocritical, a complete person. I guess when we think about it, those of us who are believers would love to be more authentic, more consistent, more holy, fully characterized by love for God and love for others. To be the kind of people that wherever you drop us, whatever the challenges, the difficulties, the relational dynamics, the pressures, wherever we are, we remain Christ-like, kind, patient, loving, gentle, joyful, peaceful, holy. 
Even if we don't long for that, I think the outside world wishes we were like that. It's one of the biggest complaints, isn't it? Christians, where's the authenticity? It's one thing saying lovely things about Jesus, but, but what about your lives? What about your churches? What about what's going on? It's actually one of the most wonderful things about the Lord Jesus, when you think about it. Wherever you caught him, however tired, however hungry, however busy, however much he was under attack, he always acted lovingly, rightly, utter integrity. And his brother says to us, if you want to be someone like that, someone like my brother, and God wants us to be someone like that, if you want to be someone like that, there's, there's one key means of growth, trials. So don't resent them or, or despair at them or think, well, there's three years of my life wasted. Don't bury your head in your hands. And I've done this in recent months and in recent years, both for myself and for others, and think, Lord, why all of this at once? Why all of these challenges why such struggles? How can that possibly be a good thing for your child, for your servant? Well, no, remember James 1. In fact, just this weekend, I was speaking to a couple in full-time ministry who've been enduring a, a very, very difficult situation for an extended period. It just sounded awful. Uh, my heart was grieved for them. But amazingly, by God's grace, their hearts, I mean, their hearts, near broken hearts, really, But their hearts, from James 1, from Romans 5, from 1 Peter 1, their hearts had started to realize that this immense pain they were going through must be part of God's plans to grow them, to grow their character, to grow their endurance, to prepare them for the rest of ministry, to prepare them for eternity, to make them whole, to strengthen the most important qualities we need as followers of Jesus in this difficult world. I think even kind of commentators around the world have said that a big crisis like coronavirus gives everyone a chance to kind of take stock, kind of step back and say, what do I actually value? And how am I going to reshape patterns to live for what I care about? I think we've all kind of had that opportunity well, how much more for those of us who know God when trials come, when they face us with that direct choice of where are you going to turn, to whom are you going to turn, to God or to the world or to try both? Let me ask it candidly. Where have you been turning over the summer? What's been getting you through? I wonder if any of us have been one foot in Christ's boat, one foot firmly on the bank. If we find ourselves getting kind of bitter and grumbly as the trials come, it may be because we don't value the steadfastness they can grow. But if we are struggling, I mean, this isn't easy to take on board. If we are struggling... Verse 5 gives us what we should do. This is point 2. 
It's James's practical help. He's ever so practical. We'll see that as we go through. This is the next step. If you think, well, I want to take that on board, but I'm not sure I can take that on board. Well, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. I love this promise. It's absolutely brilliant. I often bring it to mind, actually. It's one of my kind of go-to promises when I'm praying, because I face so many issues where I don't really know what to do or what to think in life and ministry. God gives generously wisdom to all without reproach, and it, it will be given him. A direct promise, just like with Solomon, can be true for us. Ask for wisdom, he will give it. If we're struggling to have the right perspective on our trials, struggling to believe they're eternally productive, well, ask for help. Wisdom. Notice there is one caveat. We can't ask with fingers crossed while we pray. Verse 6. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. I've called this not asking with fingers crossed. What do I mean? Well, partly I am saying we need to trust God. We need to trust he's a good father, that he gives good gifts, that he will give wisdom as promised. It's partly an element of taking God at his word. It's not a kind of, mm, I don't know if he's going to. But that raises the question, well, what if, what if I sometimes have a doubt flash through my mind when I'm praying, a kind of intellectual doubt? I don't know if you've had that. You know the thought, am I just praying to the ceiling? Can God really do anything about this? Does God really love me enough to listen to my prayers? Does that mean if you ever have one of those doubts flash through your mind, well, you probably can't expect any answer to your prayers? No, I don't think that's what James is talking about. I don't think he's talking about the occasional intellectual doubt because we're in a spiritual battle. It's actually often when we're praying, the devil will be sending flaming darts against our shield of faith. That's Ephesians 6. We're in a spiritual battle. I don't think he's talking about that. The flash of kind of, is this true? Is this prayer going anywhere? Not least because one of the prayers Jesus commends is, Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief. Mark 9. I think what he's talking about with this word doubt is a divided loyalty when we pray. Praying with fingers crossed, not in the kind of I hope it happens, but fingers crossed behind our back because we don't really want the answer. A big part of me doesn't want God to answer the prayer. Have you ever experienced that? You know the prayer you don't actually want ask, answered? Sometimes we don't even pray it, do we? You know? Lord, please give me an opportunity to talk about Jesus today. But fingers crossed behind the back, I hope it doesn't happen. It'd be too scary. Or Lord, please give me wisdom to suffer well. But actually, fingers crossed, because I really want a comfortable life, regardless of what you say about suffering. Or Lord, help me to be radically generous with my time or my money. But fingers crossed, because I really like spending both those things on myself. I think that's what James is talking about here. When I actually quite like the world's wisdom, the world's way of dealing with things, I quite like having my foot on that comfortable bank as I ride the gospel boat. I don't really want God to change me, to value eternity over now. Well, if you don't want an answer, you won't get one. Verse 7, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
I think this double-minded prayer is a kind of double-hearted prayer, double-loyalty prayer, divided loyalty. Later, I'm partly saying that because later, chapter 4, verse 3, James comes back to the subject of prayer and says this. It's the same point, I think, in different words. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, we'll explain that when we get there, but do you see the similar point? Not praying with one foot in the world and one foot in God's boat, but asking God for wisdom to go all in with him. All in for eternity. And prayer, again, it's so practical, isn't it? Prayer's often the moment where this actually happens. It's the opportunity to get real with God. If this summer you've been drifting spiritually, and I imagine quite a few of us have, it's hard enough a normal summer, even more with, with rhythms all over the place at the moment. If it's a while since you've read your Bible or you've prayed, if, it's, if you've, you've seen yourself kind of living with slightly selfish priorities over lockdown, today would be a great day just to get down on your knees, figuratively or literally, and just say, Lord, help me to see things with your wisdom again. Help me to value things from eternity. And wonderfully, this is wonderful, isn't it? He gives without reproach. There's no kind of grumpy headmaster or no boss, no kind of you're going to have to work your way back to me. No. He's a loving father who loves to give good gifts, even to wayward children like us. Okay, that's point two. If we're struggling, ask for wisdom. And don't worry, points three and four are quite short. Point three into verse nine. Verse nine is just an example of, of what God's wisdom looks like in a particular case study. So if we did get an answer to this prayer, if, we, if God does shape our wisdom, how might it change the way we look at things? And the first case study here in verses nine to 11 is money. So how might God's wisdom revolutionize our perspective on finances, that particular trial in life? Well, notice God's wisdom will revolutionize both the poor Christian's outlook on their poverty and the rich Christian's outlook on their wealth, both from eternity. So verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he'll pass away. However tough life is, so if, however socially powerless or economically weak some of these Christians were, one day they would be exalted, members of God's royal family adopted heirs of the universe and so they're told to keep that eternal perspective god's wisdom likewise for those who are rich and on a global scale that's most of us remember how temporary that really is it's a different kind of trial wealth but it is a trial because it can be a snare a trap it can fool us into thinking we're indestructible that we don't really need god that life will carry on happily ever after but James says, wise up. Just like the grass in the Middle Eastern sun, the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And we've got a preview of that, I guess, as one small virus cripples and crumples businesses and fortunes around us. It just doesn't last. That's why asking God for his wisdom is so wise, because that wisdom sees through the circumstances of right now on into eternity.
the one who grows steadfast, whether they're poor or rich, will be gaining the most precious thing that does last. Although you do have to let steadfastness have its full effect. Verse 4, did you notice that? Just to pop back there for a moment. Let steadfastness have its full effect. It's an important thing, actually. It's not automatic that we grow our character through trials. Um, I mentioned earlier wise old saints who've been through the wars and they now have the fragrance of Christ, you know, in their smile, in their eyes, in their patience, their contentment, their trust. You do meet people like that and it's a joy. You also meet people who are bitter and grumbly, who seem to have traveled through life just building a, a catalog of grievances and disappointments, a record of wrongs, a sense of how others, how even God has let them down. That's why I walked away. God didn't really play his part. It can go either way under trial, whether financial trial or any other trial. And so James, in point four, ends his introductory section coming back to the warning, what not to do when life is tough. When trials come, here's what not to do, verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, the word tempted is actually the same word as trial, and it can mean either kind of difficult time trial, or it can mean tempt, like here. But using the same word shows how closely together these things come. When you're going through difficult times, temptation's not far away. It's when the stress is on at work, or we're struggling with singleness, that the temptation to justify watching something unhelpful is acute. It's when the kids haven't slept again, that the temptation is to excuse uh, shouting in the house. It's when finances are tight, the house springs a leak, we're tempted to grumble and rage. When someone's unkind to me, I think rudeness is justified back, or at least I'm tempted to think that. At our most perverse, we actually find ourselves blaming God for that. So God, if you'd only provided me a partner, if you'd only provided more money, if you'd only changed this or changed that, you basically put me in this situation, so what else could I do? James says, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Unlike us, God is not inconsistent or fickle. He's not double-minded. He only gives good gifts. Think of Jesus. Wherever you met him, whenever you met him, whatever was going on, he did the right thing. And our Father shares his character. That means if we fall into sin, if we give in to temptation, it's definitely not because God tempted us or made it impossible, as if there was no way out. It may feel impossible. That's when we need to ask for wisdom in the trial. Now, next time, we're going we're gonna to unpack a bit more about where temptation does come from, this birth imagery um, that's there uh, in verses 13 to 15. Um, but just clock that point. Don't be deceived. Do count trials a joy for what they can grow, don't blame God for temptation to sin. That's actually coming from inside me. It's time to close.
Let me say that when you're going through the mill, and I've said this to people with, in tears, me and them, recently, when you're going through the mill, trusting that God is a good father who gives good gifts can be one of the hardest truths to cling to. And yet, is the most important. My Heavenly Father only gives good gifts. He never changes. Consistently good. If he's withholding the thing I most want, the thing I feel like I need, or if he's sending me through the valley I least want to walk through, he only knows how to give good gifts. And he will give you wisdom to keep going if we only ask. And for those of us who've been turning everywhere but him over recent weeks or months, turning half to him, half everywhere else, well, maybe today would be a good time to take some time out this afternoon, maybe take, turn off the devices, turn off the distractions, and just pray to our Father. He welcomes all without a reproach. And say, give me wisdom to get back in the boat. To value what you value. To turn from sin that can entangle us so easily. And he will give generously. Let's pray. Our good Father, we thank you that while we are inconsistent, you are not. We thank you that you give good gifts. And we pray as we embark on this series in James and I guess have our hearts examined, maybe discover there's more double-mindedness in us than we might think, we pray that every week, every day, you'd help us keep turning to you and not from you or against you. Pray particularly for any brothers and sisters really going through the mill at the moment, struggling to know how to do the next day. Please, would you strengthen them with steadfastness? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.